Hello, and welcome to Apparitions and Alibis. I'm your host, AJ Stallman. How are you doing? It's been, what, like two years? <laughs> and a lot has happened on my end, and I'm sure a lot has happened on yours too, but that's life. There's ups and downs, and there's wins, and there's losses, and so on. However, here we are both, again, together, go us! <laughs> also, little coffee trick for my flavored coffee lovers cinnamon coffee with a little bit of brown sugar and french vanilla creamer it tastes just like a cinnamon roll fresh out of the oven and i don't know about you but cinnamon rolls give me nostalgia because growing up every holiday morning whether it was easter or thanksgiving christmas what have you that's what we were having that morning. And usually we weren't eating until the big feast later. <laughs> so it was only the cinnamon rolls, but it was so good. And it just, oh, it warms my heart. And I hope that maybe you try it and you like it too. Anyways, today we're here and we're going to beautiful Ireland for our haunted visit to two different locations. So I have my coffee, I have my dogs, I have you. Let's do this. Before we dive into Loftus Hall spookiness, we need to talk about its history. In 1170, Raymond Lickraw acquired the land in County Wexford and built a castle named Houseland. As time goes on, it lands in the hands of the Redmond family, who replaced the original castle with another one of their own in 1350, around the time of the Black Death. Did you know that the Black Death started in the 1200s and killed 75 million people in Asia? That's three times more than in Europe. Black Death hit Europe between 1348 and 1350, and it did end up killing half the population in some areas. The other name, Bubonic Plague, came from the uh, swollen buboes or glands in the different regions of your body, like your neck, armpits, inner thighs, and that would fill with blood and other yuckies and turn black. The victim, who was bitten by the infected rat flea, would often perish within 12 hours of the nibble. When symptoms were noticed, they would put a white cross on the door of the home and stick all the residents in the home and close it and said, no one can leave. So... If someone in your household gets sick because they've been bitten by these infected fleas, you're stuck in there with them, and it's not going to smell good. That's all I'm saying. It's just not, it's not going to smell good. Okay, yes. So, the Redmond family built a new home, called it Redmond's Hall, because, of course. And in 1642, the Redmond family still had ownership. The year prior, the Irish Confederate Wars had begun and finally made its way to the county Wexford. A nearby English captain, Thomas Aston, got wind that the hall was sympathetic to rebels and felt it could be taken down really easy. So Captain Aston sailed 90 of his men himself and two small cannons to the Hook Peninsula where the hall resides. At this time, the hall's owner is 68-year-old Alexander Redman. He, with his two sons, Robert and Michael, as well as different tenants, two men-at-arms, and a traveling tailor, poor thing, who just happened to be there when the attack took place. They all barricaded the halls and prepared to defend. 
All in all, there were 10 defenders, all armed with long-barreled fowling pieces. I'm not the best with gun knowledge, but I knew it had something to do with bird hunting, so I looked them up to see what they looked like, and I found the punt gun. It needs two people to hold it. It is so long. I doubt that's what they were using, but you have to look up the image because it's amazing. So 10 people and their bird guns are standing protecting the hall when Captain Aston waddles up and demands entrance in the name of the king. Alexander Redmond replied, you are more than welcome in, provided you leave your men and your weapons outside. The captain didn't like this answer, and a long gun battle started. No pun intended. The captain soon noticed his cannons weren't actually making that much of a difference. Plus, to add to his stress, most of the men he brought abandoned him to go pillage and plunder the countryside, like one does. Local Irish Confederates were encamped at Shieldbaggin and heard of the attack. They quickly marched to the hall side and surprised Captain Aston's men in the cover of fog. Aston himself was killed during the fight, and only about 30 English made their way back to their boats and to the fort. Many others were taken prisoners, and several were actually hung the next day. But poor Alexander, he didn't even have to protect the hall only once, but he had to do it again in the fall of 1649 during the Cromwellian conquest of Ireland. They actually used sacks of wool to block up breaches in the wall created by enemy cannon. I think that's super cool. However, after Alexander passed, in 1951. Just kidding. That is 300 years wrong. 1651. The rest of his family was evicted and moved to another home in the area. The Loftus family soon took over, but it wasn't until 1666 when the son, Henry Loftus, moved into the hall that became the main residence. The old name was still in use for the hall, so Henry had an inscription in stone put on the front entrance that read, Henry Loftus of Loftus Hall, 1680. I guess instead of putting the year he moved in, he just put when all he finished all of his upgrades and stuff. Henry ends up doing a lot of reconstruction on the home, as it was attacked so much in the previous years, as do a lot of owners that come in after him. In the coming years, the building would serve as a home for Benedictine nuns, a school for girls run by the Sisters of Providence, and at one point became the Loftus Hall Hotel, which closed in the early 1900s. But our story is with Charles Tottenham, the Lord of the Manor, around 1752, and his daughter. Now, Charles actually married into the Loftus family via marrying Anne Loftus and had to adopt the name in order to inherit the lands. Together, Anne and Charles had six kids, four boys and two girls, Elizabeth and Anne. While the girls are still young, the mother passed away after becoming ill. As it's normal then, two years after Anne's death, Charles remarried his cousin, Jane Cliff, and they all lived together in Loftus Hall. During a very difficult storm, a ship docked at the Hook Peninsula. A young man eventually made his way to the home and was welcomed in. As the night went on, sparks grew between the young man and Anne, and he actually stayed for a couple of days 
These days went by, and on another evening, the family and the stranger were playing cards. It's late in the evening, and the clock struck midnight, causing Anne, the daughter, to jump. Most of her cards landed on the table for all to see, but one fell on the floor. Milo is calling out for love. Anne leaned over to pick it up. As her head was beneath the table, she noticed that the stranger had not normal feet. You have cloven feet? she exclaimed. That's right. The dude had like hooves. This made the young man shoot through the roof in a ball of flames, leaving a hole in the ceiling. Soon after, Anne became very ill and maybe even a little heartbroken. Family was embarrassed by her behavior and in an attempt to hide her, but kind of keep her happy, they locked her away in her favorite room, the tapestry room. However, as we all know, things like that just doesn't end pretty. She refused to eat or drink as she waited for her stranger to return to Loftus Hall, which he never does. So she sits in the tapestry room with her chin on her knees, looking out the window across the sea. It's said that she actually died that same year, in that sitting position. And when they went to bury her, they couldn't straighten her body, so she was placed in her grave as such. There are also versions that say she was pregnant, perhaps by the stranger, and that the family did not want anyone to know. So she passed due to labor complications with no doctor being called. This version might actually hold some truth because during renovation of the tapestry room, a small baby skeleton was hidden in the walls. Today, Anne's grave is in the local graveyard. And while the graveyard itself is fairly normal, her grave is not. For whatever reason, her grave is completely cemented over. Clearly, they did not want people to have access to her body. Or is it something else? Now, a question I do have. The stranger stayed with them for multiple nights, and it wasn't until they were playing cards that the feet were seen. How do they not notice the difference in his steps when he walked? Wouldn't they make a different noise? Like wood versus stone? Maybe it's special shoes that he forgot to put on at night. Got too comfortable. I just feel like the devil doesn't slip up like that. Or does he? Seemingly, the devil does slip up because two hours north in Dublin is the Hellfire Club, in which he made a similar appearance. The Hellfire Club Lodge is actually part of a variety of walking trails and beautiful views. Originally on top of Montpellier Hill, there was an ancient burial passage grave site Whew. with a pile of stones stacked on top. Now, a passage grave is something I did not know about, but it's really beautiful, I think. This tomb style is from the early Bronze Ages in the British Isles and Europe. They are a roofed burial chamber with a narrow entrance passage, hence the name, and that narrow entrance is covered by a round mound of grass and dirt. Of course, inside would be human remains of loved ones and funeral-type offerings. Then, 
1725, William Speaker Connolly, an extremely wealthy man in Ireland at the time, decided to build a hunting lodge in the same place. And even had the nerve to use some of the stone from the burial site as the lintel for his fireplace. And if you don't know what a lintel is, I googled it for both of us. It is a horizontal beam placed across the fireplace to support the chimney. and goes across the fireplace opening. Also, the building itself is pretty big. It's roughly three stories. The main floor was the kitchen, servant quarters, and stairs to the next floor. The main entrance was from the outside, and it was actually a flight of stairs up to the second floor, which are kind of ruined and not even really there now. On the second floor was a hall and two reception rooms. And then the third floor held sleeping quarters and bedrooms. Outside on each side of the building is a room with kind of like a lean-to roof, which is probably used to put their horses away. There are even stone mounting blocks in the same area to help assist. Okay, cool. So after Connolly built the place, there was a storm that simply removed the roof from the lodge. And so the locals believed it to be the spirits from the burial site, which they totally have a right to be pissed, am I right? So after William Connolly passed away in 1725, so the lodge is sold and it becomes a meeting place for the Irish Hellfire Club. The Hellfire Club was founded by Richard Parsons, a guy known for playing with black magic. The club was known to be amoral and heavily involved with sex and alcohol in their rituals. It was said that the president was named, quote, the King of Hell, and apparently they held black masses in the lodge where cats and people would be sacrificed. Also, it was believed that a place setting was put up in hopes that the devil would join them in eating their specialty drink of whiskey and hot butter. And maybe one night he did. According to the legend, According to the legend, a stranger, of course, joins the club members at a game of cards. How the stranger got in since it's so secret, I don't know. Anywho, a player, like Anne from Loftus Hall, dropped a card and leaned down to pick it up, finding hoofed feet under the table. The stranger set the club on fire, leaving it the runes it is today. But there are other stories as well surrounding the building and the club that used it. There was a young farmer who was really curious about the going-goings at the Hellfire Club. Climbing up Montpellier, where it sits, he was invited in by the members. He even got to witness that night's activities. Though no one really knows what happens, tradition states that he spent the rest of his life unable to speak and unable to remember his own name. Another tale is of a young man who goes to uncover the activities of the club and is found dead the next morning. The local priest and a farmer go up to the Hellfire Club to see what happened. Once they got there, they saw a banquet laid out and a black cat prowling the room. But this cat looked different. It was huge and its ears were shaped like horns. 
with a tiny vial of holy water with him, the priest attempted to exorcise the animal. And I mean, as an exorcism, not take old kitty here for a walk. The beast gets torn apart in this action. And while this was happening inside, the farmer was still outside the building. And when the priest left, he found the farmer dead outside, his face and neck deeply scratched and torn by claws. At some point, this lodge is definitely damaged by fire, right? Well, one story recounts that after a black mass, a footman spilled a drink on a guy by the name of Burn Chapel Whaley. And, you know, this drink was on Burn Chapel's coat. Whaley was not thrilled and poured brandy over the man and set him on fire. The fire spread around the building and it killed many members. Following the fire at the club, the club relocated to the Killikey House down the hill. However, after the flame incident, the club's activity really slows down. The Irish Hellfire Club was up and running again in 1771 and continued for another 30 years. During those years, there was an active gentleman in the club by the name of Thomas Buck Whaley, a different Whaley. This new group called themselves the Holy Fathers. Meetings, of course, took place at the lodge. There's a story that this group kidnapped, killed, and ate a farmer's daughter. Whaley eventually repented, and when he died in 1800, the club ended. Now, if we fast forward to between 1968 and 1970, yes, actually 1970, a couple named Margaret and Nicholas O'Brien are fixing up the Killikey House. You remember? We were just talking about it. They're trying to turn it into an art center. During the renovation, several tradesmen reportedly left the site and refused to return due to a black cat with glowing eyes. That cat is said to be a victim of the club who poured whiskey on it and set it on fire at the house. A friend of the couple, Tom Mc was helping the couple out by painting with two other men one night. Suddenly, the temperature dropped and the door swung open, showing a hazy figure in the shadows. Thinking it's a joke, Tom called out, come in, I can see you. But all three men froze when the reply was a deep, aggressive growl. They fled the room, making sure to slam the door behind them. And when looking back, the door was wide open and a huge black cat with red glowing eyes were staring back at them. Tom later recalled that he felt like his legs couldn't get him away from the place and that he was in a really, really bad state. After this happened, the O'Briens had the place exercise and things calmed down for a bit. In October of 69, a group of actors staying at the art center thought it would be a good joke to hold a seance. And activity picked up again. And this time with two 
new friends. Nuns who would appear in front of people in the gallery of the art center. In 1970, a television crew went out with a clairvoyant called Sheila St. Clair. She communicated with spirits through automatic writing. She claimed that the phantoms were unhappy spirits of two women who had assisted at satanic rituals during the meetings of the Hellfire Club. The website, hauntedprinter.com, where I found info also briefly mentions the club having rituals that included setting a barrel on fire with a woman inside it and a ritual of beating and murdering a deformed boy. In July of the same year, a small skeleton was found buried beneath the kitchen floor with a brass statuette of a monstrous demon in the grave with it. Some say it might be a dwarf skeleton the club was known to have in their rituals. Or perhaps the body of a farmer's daughter who was eaten. Or maybe a boy who looked a little different. As for hauntings at Loftus Hall, I was able to find that it's considered one of the most haunted places in Ireland, but I couldn't find very many stories or accounts on it. I did find that a gentleman by the name of Thomas Beavis claims to have caught a female ghost on camera. A photo he took while visiting the hall seems to have a spectral image of a lady in the window. But is it a reflection? Or is it Anne Tottenham? still waiting for her devilish love to return. Two different locations, two small skeletons, two similar stories. One mysterious devil causing a scene. What's up with the devil in the cards anyways? Devil of Benton Man? I guess so, because like poker. I don't know, is poker related to like tricksters? I know nothing. Doesn't he remember losing his fiddle in Georgia? Why continue? It makes it makes no sense. And Anne's grave being cemented? Kind of extreme, honestly. I wonder what the family was hiding. Do we have the technology to scan through cement and see what's going on yet? Are we that advanced? No? Hmm. As always, thank you so much for listening. Remember to rate and review wherever you listen. If you want to donate to the podcast, we do have a Patreon. You can find us at patreon.com forward slash apparitions and alibis. On Patreon, there are a number of tiers that you can sign up for that are monthly donations to help the podcast run smoothly. Feel free to follow us on Instagram and Facebook. I love you all and hope you're having a great morning, night, afternoon, wherever you may be. And I will talk to you later. Later.